Rick Stevens, financial advisor with FRS Financial Group, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. For more detailed information regarding any of the topics discussed on today's show, please call 719-500-8700. This is Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial. Here's your host, Rick Stevens. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial Group. I am your host, Rick Stevens, and this is your show. Remember, if you've got questions that you would like to have answered on a future episode, if you've got a topic that you would like to hear a little bit more about, please give us a call at 719-500-8700. You can shoot me an email, rstevens at frsfinancialgroup.com, or go to the website, frsfinancialgroup.com, click on that contact tab, Send us your question. Send us that topic you'd like to hear more about because we would love to hear from you. Well, folks, this week on Money Matters, we are in studio as always with Andrew Rogers. Andrew, how are we doing today? Doing fantastic. How are you doing, Rick? Well, I'm thinking about saying it depends, you know, because uh, as, as we are recording this, we are five days away from the four greatest words in the English language. Yeah. Pitchers and catchers report. So spring is coming. There's True. some hope in the air. So that means seven days from some mathematical eliminations for a few teams already. Uh, just a couple. Just right. a couple. I'm not going to name any teams out loud, Pittsburgh, but there might be a team or two that might be mathematically eliminated before spring training games even start yeah. this year. Uh, well, folks, we are also joined in studio this week with Evan Withrow, again with us from Steiners and Dejas, Burrell and Wilhelmy, because I guess I can give Ian and Chris a little a little okay uh, in there as well. Evan, welcome back to the show. Hi, Rick. How are you? Uh, finer than uh, I th- I, finer than my hair, right? Not just finer than frog hair, but finer than my hair. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you actually be finer than nothing? I mean, that might be more of a mathematical question. Uh, you know what? It's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's still there because I cut it about every six weeks whenever I wake up and it looks like it needs moved out of, yeah. back into place. I just cut it again right. instead of combing it. Um, so I do have to issue the disclaimer that LPL and FRS Financial do not endorse the guests that appear on Money Matters, but Evan... I can tell you, well, I think I can tell you we're glad that you're back, but you probably already know that it depends. It always depends. That's, <laughs> I feel like you guys bring me back just so we can say that. It's it's very true. Now, I know you've got disclosure that you've got to throw out there as well, so go for it. Yeah, for sure. So uh, just from my perspective, obviously, what we're going to be talking about today, um, the information I'm providing is really just general guidance and general information. It's not meant as legal advice. Every situation is different. That's why the answer more often than not depends. So um, if you you all out there have specific issues, questions, um, feel free to reach out to me directly and I, I can speak to those. But today we're just talking generally not meant as legal advice, um, just an overview of some of the issues and questions we're going to address. Awesome, Evan. Awesome. You know, um, the the folks at Steiners and Dayos, you guys really are a full service, as full service as you can be, except for a couple of little areas in there in the uh, the legal aspect. But we always bring you on to talk about the estate 
planning side because that's one of those sides that that deals a lot on the on the finance side and oftentimes when you're here we talk about the why of the estate plan and and all of those pieces but i wanted to actually start today even though we'll cover some of the why again i want to start today with a little bit more of the how because i think that's something that a lot of folks kind of have a little trepidation about there. They're thinking, oh my goodness, what do I have to go through? What is all of this crazy stuff that that I'm going to have to figure out and find and provide to to these estate planning attorneys to, to really make this thing work? And I guess, can you talk us through a little bit on that how the the creating the documents you know what does that look like for clients do we have you know 85 different meetings do we do one you know what what does that process really look like in those first meeting or two or or three really it's a great question rick because you're absolutely right that i think anytime somebody has to talk about these things it's a little difficult right we're talking about mortality we're talking about what happens to our things when we pass and so, you know, if I can give a little information on my specific process, I think every lawyer's process is a little different. 30,000 foot view for me, and then we can kind of dig into the details of each meeting, is I bring you in for a consultation. Um, we talk through your family, um, your general estate assets. So I don't need a list of everything you own. Um, you know, I, I get a general snapshot of of what you own, whether it's house, cars, bank accounts, investments. Um, and then we kind of talk about what plan you want to put in place. And, and then I get some specifics about that. And after that initial meeting, the idea is I get enough information to put draft documents together and then send those out to you either via email or hard copy. More often than not, there's a few little tweaks or changes uh, that need to be made before they're put in final form. But typically, we'll save an extra, you know, save you a trip to my office by just communicating on the phone or via Zoom or some sort of web video to, you know, talk through any questions you might have. And then once we've answered questions and gotten them finalized, the second trip you take to my office uh, is to sign the documents. And I like to think it's a relatively painless process. <laughs> um, I try to make it as simple and, and as easy as it can be. Um, given the subject matter, but that's kind of the overarching process that I have. You know, every, every lawyer is a little different, but um, I'm also flexible. So if it means we need to take a meeting, another meeting, I'm happy to, to sit down and go through the documents in detail. Sometimes people hire me because they, they know that I'm going to take care of the documents and they just want to make sure that the names are in the right places and they're spelled right. Um, <laughs> other people want to really dig into it. Uh, so I tend to be flexible in that regard, but that's the overall process. Absolutely. And when you talk about estate planning as well, there's a lot of these terms that we hear a lot. So what are the major roles that really need to be spelled out and people should at least be thinking ahead as they're having those consultations so they have a little bit as far as they know what or whom needs to be included or not? So the major roles that we typically look at, and and it's you're right, Andrew, that it's best if you can think about these things before you come meet with me. More often than not, I get people sat down and I go through, you know, what the estate planning process looks like, what those roles are. And then sometimes they know right away, you know, who they're going to put in place. Other times they need some time to think. But that's where that kind of drafting process where we put together initial uh, documents and then refine those. But, you know, if 
if you're listening to this, the hope would be you're thinking about it. And the primary one that everybody tends to know is is an executor, uh, and that's someone who administers your estate after your after you pass. So that's the individual that identifies your assets, um, compiles those assets, and then distributes them according to the provisions of your will. Um, there's another term for an executor, and it's actually the legal term that Colorado uses, and that's a personal representative. So if you ever hear anyone say personal representative in Colorado, it's the same thing as, as an executor. It's just Colorado has to be unique, I guess, and <laughs> personal representative or PR is the term of art for the state of Colorado. But executor is your biggest one because that's the person that you're trusting to basically carry out the provisions of your will. So so along those lines, as we're, as we're looking at coming up with who we're going to have as that personal representative or who we're going to have as an executor, when we're thinking this through, do we only need one or is it a good idea to actually have multiple folks in mind? Because even though they're named as being that personal representative or the executor, people could refuse that, right? That's right. So usually when we're planning, the idea is you don't have to come and see me you know, more often than when major life events happen. And so what my typical recommendation is, is you have a primary uh, person designated as your executor. Um, typically when you're married, that's your spouse. Um, after spouses have passed away, you know, sometimes it's adult children, brothers, sisters, but you'll have a primary, you'll have a backup. And then I typically recommend you have a third. And that's because if, you know, your documents are great and you don't need to make revisions, um, time may go on and some of those people may move away. They may pass away, but you're right, Rick, in that they can also, um, choose to not act in that capacity. So if your primary, say, has passed away and your backup doesn't want to do it, we'd prefer to have a third person that you designate because otherwise who takes over typically goes by state law and or the court would need to get involved there to appoint somebody. So it's always good to have three, in my opinion, because you just never know how circumstances can change. Yeah, and you know, with that in mind, as you mentioned earlier, these are usually kind of some of those sensitive topics. A lot of people don't really like bringing up that mortality or you know, kind of losing that control. But what are some other misconceptions that uh, you really kind of have to walk through people through a lot of times when it comes to making at least that decision as far as an executor or I guess as Colorado has to call it a PR. The biggest thing I tend to tell people is, and this is because they've heard horror stories about the probate process or the estate administration process, I'd say more often than not, that's when people don't have a plan in place. Um, Your executor or your personal representative, the biggest thing I tell people is they're bound by the terms of your will, right? They are legally obligated to carry that out and they have fiduciary duties related to that, which Rick knows all about fiduciary duties, but uh, they're a little different in this regard, but they could face personal liability if they don't carry out those duties and they owe that duty to the estate, to the deceased individuals and to the beneficiaries, right? The heirs of the estate. And so what I typically tell people is, you know, there may be some conflict amongst your family, but if you put somebody in place that you trust to carry out those wishes, you know, people can kind of pound the table sometimes Um, but in the end, what you've set out in your will is what goes. And more often than not, even if there's a conflict, the court's going to say the same thing. So it's always kind of just pushing back against 
people's generalized fears, whether it's because they've had other family members or friends go through a difficult process. And it's not to say there aren't those cases, but it's you put somebody in place you trust, we outline what you want. And that's, you know, 95 plus percent of my estate and probate cases after people have passed are very routine. So one of those uh, one of those other pieces that that we look at, and and I don't want to simply assume it's it's kind of like setting out that executor, that personal representative, and and having you know two three different folks kind of listed in there in in order, but some of those other roles that that folks may have to think about, right? If you've set up a trust, you've got to have trustees uh, involved. If you've got uh, you know minor children, you've got the guardian or the custodian. Uh, that sort of stuff going on in there. Is, is there any other role that that somebody might have to be thinking of to have as part of that overall estate plan that that we might not you know come across on a on a daily basis or even a you know weekly monthly whatever a, a role that we haven't thought about at this point. The most common roles we've mentioned, right, your executor, your personal representative, your trustee, if you have a living trust or you're setting up testamentary trust for your children. One of the big ones that people don't think about, and honestly, a lot of the times it's a hurdle for people to come in because they don't want to make the decision, is a guardian or a custodian of your minor children. Um, and that's the person that will take care of your kids, right? And not necessarily from a financial side, if you're setting up a trust for them, that'd be the trustee. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later about the interplay between those roles, but typically the big biggest three you need to think about are your executor, your PR, which is a more temporary role, right? That's the person that's going to administer and then distribute. Trustee, more of a long-term role, uh, same with guardian. Um, but I've had people come to me where they finally come into the office and they've set up an estate plan that they've never had before because their kids are now over the age of 18 because they didn't want to make a decision as to who <laughs> yes. is going to take care of their kids, which they got lucky, right? And maybe not lucky, you know, but uh, we'd prefer that you have something in place just in case because we're lawyers. We think of worst case scenario. And um, if you don't set out a guardian or custodian, that's where you can see family law issues tend to crop up sometimes. Yeah, and I know we're approaching the end of the first segment, but I've got to ask, you know, when it comes to those different roles, the executor, trustee, guardian, knowing that, as you mentioned, they have different roles and kind of different kind of time periods they'll be, you know, working through, is it the best case then to maybe choose different individuals or could that be something that really you could choose, you know, one person, you'd be, you know, kind of all three? It feels like you asked this question on purpose just to get this answer, <laughs> but it depends. And, and we can talk through that a little more in segment two. Um, but uh, it, it does depend uh, usually based on your family circumstance. And on that note, folks, we are up against the first break in today's show. When we come back, we continue talking with Evan Withrow, estate attorney at Steiner's and Dejas Burrell and Will Helmy. Folks, stick around. We will be right back. Does stock market volatility have you wondering which way is up? Do the talking heads and doomsayers have you wondering if this really is the end? If you want straight answers from an advisor who isn't just trying to sell you something, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary appointment today. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. 
Welcome back to Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial Group. Andrew Rogers alongside Rick Stevens and Evan Withrow. We're talking about uh, not exactly the whys, but the hows when it comes to estate planning. Before the break, kind of hit Evan with that uh, question that we all know how he would answer. Uh, Long-time <laughs> yes, listeners yes. <laughs> playing along at home can uh, go ahead and fill out the box with me. But uh, I guess, Evan, kind of continuing with that, what would be some of those uh Different circumstances or kind of, de- you know, depending factors as far as who you would name to either a personal representative or guardian, trustee, and, you know, what would be some advantages, disadvantages of having it kind of spread across a little bit? So a lot of the times, you know, like I briefly mentioned, is more often than not, it's going to be family circumstances and relationships, but also the nature of your assets to some extent as well. So I will say up front, more often than not, my recommendation is that your executor uh, or your personal representative be the same as your trustee. And that's predominantly because your executor is the person that's identifying your assets and figuring out you know, how to split those assets up and where they go based on the terms of your will. So they've already got a little bit of a head start as to what your assets are, what those finances look like. Um, and in the situations where you have a testamentary trust for minor children or for, you hate to say it, but uh, family members that may not be minor children but are not as financially responsible as mm-hmm. you would have hoped. Um, so if you're setting up those testamentary trusts for the benefit of some of your family members, you also need a trustee to oversee and manage the assets of that trust going forward. That's the role of the trustee. So that's when I earlier I said the executor or PR is more temporary, right? They have kind of a finite period. Once they've distributed the assets out, whether it's directly to beneficiaries or into a trust, their role basically ends. Um, However, that's where the trustee picks it up. Um, And it would be, you know, working with somebody like Rick to make sure that the money in those trusts continues to grow. But the trustee's main responsibility is going to be having a relationship with the beneficiary, whether it's a minor child or otherwise, to talk about life needs, to talk about when distributions make sense, whether it's for health, education, general maintenance, support, things of that nature. So more often than not, because they're similar roles, just more on short term versus long term, um, I recommend that those two be the same, your executor and your trustee. I will preface that with sometimes where the kids are going or where the beneficiary is, you want a trustee that's maybe located more closely to them, which may not be where your estate is being administered. So every now and then we will have a personal representative or an executor that's more local, and then they kind of interface with the trustee as those trusts are set up, but the trustee may be in a better position to carry on the trust and work with the beneficiary more closely. So that's kind of those two Um And then when you kind of transition to a guardian, um, that's a whole different responsibility, right? Um, Executor, personal representative, trustee, they're more financial, right? There's Mm -hmm. still a relational component with the beneficiaries, but your guardian and your conservator is, you know, they're kind of stepping into mom and dad's shoes to some extent, right? They're taking care of the kids. Um, And my recommendation a lot of the times is not to necessarily have the guardian and the trustee be the same. And that's for a couple of different reasons. One is it's a lot to take on new kids, right? Ones that you hadn't necessarily planned for, but you were willing to do. And that's honorable to then have to manage the administrative tasks and the responsibility that comes with handling the money and the assets. 
it's a lot to put on one person. Um, the other is more of a kind of relational component, which is if you're the guardian or conservator and then you're having difficulties, right? Maybe a relationship breakdown with, with the children. Um, I've seen situations where in their capacity as also trustee, they're going to withhold money, right? And so it just muddies the family dynamic and can cause relationships to break down sometimes. Uh, on the other hand, there are people that don't know multiple individuals and okay. they trust and are willing to have one person handle those. But again, um, it depends <laughs> on, you know, your particular situation. And that's part of the conversation, right? That's people think about, oh, well, a will and a trust, I know where I want my stuff to go. So it's easy. These are all different subsets and components of how you set up your estate plan. So, so for the, those folks that maybe don't know a lot of different people that they would, you know, kind of trust on that level, or even for those folks that do, they, you know, I've got, I've got this massive, you know, friend group and we're close with a number of different sets of, uh, sets of people. If it's me and I'm setting up with you my estate plan and we're going to put forth an executor, maybe we've set up because I've got minor children, some, some trust pieces and, and we've got some guardianship issues. What are some of those questions that, that I should really be asking those folks that I'm thinking about putting in those roles? Because I shouldn't just surprise them with it, right? Right. Please, please don't do that. Um, <laughs> that's, where, that's where issues tend to arise. And that's before I kind of jump into the answer to your question is after I've had these conversations with you and, and you're thinking about who to put in place as the client, Please talk to those individuals. Please tell them of the responsibilities that come along with those particular roles. Um, you know, from a guardian standpoint, pretty straightforward, right? It's are you willing to take on more children, right, and and to care for them and love them in the same way that that we as parents do? Um, and that's you know, it's a big decision, but usually you'll have some family members that are willing to do that and. It's a pretty honest conversation, um, and that's not something from a legal perspective I can give you too much guidance on because it it's you know up to you to speak with your family members and understand who you trust to to make sure your children are taken care of on on the family side of things. As a trustee, that's more of you know a financial and administrative role, but um, you still have to have that relationship with the beneficiaries, with the kids, whether they're minors or otherwise. Um, so you do have to be involved in their life to some extent. And that's usually you're checking in with them or you're working with the guardian to understand where things are. Because for minor children, more often than not, a trustee is going to communicate more so with the guardian, right? They're not going to communicate as much with the kids because the guardian's going to say, hey, you know, we need some things for school. You know, can we get some distributions from the trust? But the trustee can take on more or less too. Um, so a lot of the times my recommendation is a trustee kind of handles the distribution side in terms of knowing what the beneficiary needs, but pushes off the management of assets as much as they can, which again is working with a financial planner or accountants to make sure that the trust funds are safe. They continue to grow, but at the same time you can access those. So, um, you know, a lot of the times we see people that have a financial background in their family or have handled the family you know, finances, that's a pretty prime candidate for a trustee a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, those are just some of the things you think about in talking with those folks and, and making sure they're aware because 
handling the estate, probate, and trust administration side, there are too many times where people call me and say, hey, I just got notified that I'm the personal representative or that I'm the trustee. What do I do? And I don't think I can do this. And so those things can all be smoothed over if you have those conversations with some family. Absolutely. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of these situations do change over time as well. The uh, family dynamics change, the family size structure also changes right now. So as we're having these discussions as far as uh, kind of those individuals, those roles that are being uh, asked to take on, um, how often should that really be maybe looked at or addressed to make sure that everything is working as smooth as possible when it inevitably has to kick in? There's a number of different reasons why you might want to revisit that. I think we've mentioned it before in the terms of you know addition, subtraction, division, but we've talked more about that with regards to our ourselves, right, or you as a client, whereas revisiting that role may depend on addition, subtraction, division, or passage of time with the other folks, right? So say you've got a brother and sister or, you know, a brother who's married, they don't have any kids or they have one child. So they're willing to take on your, your three kids or two kids, however many you have. Or six. Yes. Or six. (laughs) Because Rick is a brave, brave human Uh. (laughs) to deal with all that energy. Um, So good for you, Rick. But Those are where situations, you know, maybe brother or sister, those folks have three more kids. Suddenly they're not in a place to take on more children, right? And that's continuing to understand not just your own family dynamic, but how things have changed and grown with those particular individuals. Age is a big one um, because I see a lot of, and that's maybe more on the trustee side. You see a lot of folks that have parents that have a financial background, they're financial planners or accountants or retired from that, but that's who they trust. Five, 10, 15 years go by. Suddenly we need to look at somebody that's going to make more sense in terms of age. So it's the same considerations we've talked about before, but less so with how it applies to you and more so with how it applies to those particular designated individuals. Yeah, because at uh, at one point, um, in fact, I think it's still technically this way because we, uh, I'll be honest on the air, we haven't come to see you to fix this yet. <laughs> it's not uncommon. Um, <laughs> okay. um, we, we had selected my, my niece and nephew as, I think, our number three option in the list on the, on the Guardian side of things. Um, but that was when they didn't have kids. Now they have three, so our six would make it nine, even though I've got a couple that are adults that at this point don't need guardianship. But... That is one of those things, right? As we come back over the years to, to really revisit and say, can you guys handle more kids at this point? Because when you have none, and when they had none, we only had three. But in the meantime, they've had three and we've had three more. Um, so right. it's typically going to be that, that good thing to kind of come back to revisit, hey, are you still willing right, to, to do this sort of a thing? Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes it even is just a willingness, um, you know, whether it's trustee or guardianship too, they may be at a particular point in their professional lives that is totally different 10 years down the road, right? Maybe they've changed careers or they're just not in a situation where they can take on that extra work. And I think this is a good time to mention that, you know, once you kind of get going, there's more maintenance from a trustee side, right? Guardian, obviously it's a bigger role, but these are no small things, right? We're talking about 
not just dividing your assets, but how those assets are going to continue to serve your family and making sure that those folks know some of the time commitments that come along with that, um, because it can be some pretty big commitments uh, depending on your situation. And so that's something to make sure as you speak with them, they understand and they're willing to take that role on and making sure that every four, five years, 10 years, you're just checking in. It doesn't mean you need to come in and change your documents, but having that ongoing conversation with them. And knowing that, you know, one of those big discussions is, you know, kind of that external side of it being the addition, subtraction, division that you mentioned. Is it also then probably a good rule of thumb to maybe just name a single person in those roles instead of, you know, say like a brother and sister-in-law in case the there'd be issues with that union dissolving as well. That's a great point, and I get that pretty commonly, where you have, for guardian, more often than not, right, you name your your sibling and their spouse. My recommendation almost always is just your sibling, right? And that's just to guard against, technically, if they split, right, then they're still technically the guardians. The expectation would be that, the spouse to your sibling would not want that responsibility, but legally the document says they have it. And so they would need to renounce or resign from that position. Um, And I always tell people is that if they want to adopt your children or get more in that formal capacity, they as in the spouse of your sibling or your family member, they can absolutely do that. But we just say, hey, just your family member or the person that you trust, and then their spouse will step in as need be. Awesome. Well, folks, we are up against that next break in the show. When we come back, we're going to uh, actually dive a little bit deeper into that world of the trust, uh, comparing that with the will, talking about beneficiaries versus uh, heirs. So stick around. We will be right back. Money affects each of us in different ways. Sometimes it's a source of stress and fear. Sometimes it's a source of comfort and security. Whatever your perspective, it's always good to get a second set of eyes on your finances to help serve as a guide. If you are looking for that guidance, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary appointment. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Well, folks, welcome back to A Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group. Rick Stevens here in studio with Andrew Rogers and Evan Withrow, estate attorney at Steiner, Zendejas, Burrell, and Wilhelmi. And, and Evan, as we were headed into that break, we, we teased a little bit on the uh, the segment here. And and really, this, uh, this segment, I want to talk a little bit about that will versus trust versus, you know, beneficiary versus an heir that's been named because there are all kinds of different pieces, really different moving parts in here that that kind of go into that estate plan as a whole. And and I want to start with this this kind of a big question here, and that being is there really a difference between naming an heir in our will or or in our trust versus naming a beneficiary like on a life insurance policy or or a retirement account. Is there a difference between how those two pieces are handled? Yes. Look at that. We got an actual straight answer. <laughs> All right. You can put it down in the record books. It's uh, You got a definitive answer of yes. 
And the reason it's yes is because when we look at assets and we're doing estate plans, and that's why we call it estate planning, right? Part of that component is drafting a will or a trust. But estate planning is that overall question of where my assets go and how your assets go and when depends um, on whether that asset is subject to the control of the will or whether it's something that would pass automatically by law, such as a beneficiary designation. So typically when clients come in, this is the time where I'd whip out a piece of paper and write a very rudimentary picture of two squares. And that's looking at your assets in two main categories in terms of how those pass on to your heirs or beneficiaries. One is the property that passes automatically by law. That's a beneficiary designation. That's a payable on death designation, um, transfer on death designation, um, joint jointly owned property. So if a husband and wife are joint tenants, joint owners on a home, joint owners on an account, those things are going to pass automatically by law, irrespective of what your will says. So more often than not between spouses, it's all kind of the same. Where we see people run into issues is when they're trying to give things to children or to family members and say the will says, let's split everything equally among our three kids. And then their beneficiary designations have, say, 50-50 to two of the kids, depending on the accounts, those amounts are all different. Well, the will can say one thing, but the beneficiary designations supersede the will because when, you know, Rick, you're familiar with this, when somebody passes mm-hmm. away and there's a beneficiary designation on the account, they reach out and you send the claim form or whatever paperwork they need, and then they can get those assets. It happens totally separate from the will, right? They don't look at the will um, unless there's, you know, no beneficiary designation. And that's part of the planning process is we want to make sure that if you want it all to be consistent, either your will and your beneficiary designations are the same, or sometimes it's easier because of the nature of your assets to have no backup beneficiaries beyond your spouse. So then everything is paid into the estate and then it goes out according to your will or your trust documents. Um, And so there is absolutely a big difference. And that's where the other thing I like to think about or talk about too is parents will put, and I, and I say parents because you see it more often, mm-hmm. will put their adult children as joint owners on accounts. And a lot of the times they do that for convenience purposes, right? To allow them to pay bills for mom and dad. But the law says when mom and dad pass, that joint owner, which could be one of many siblings, that's their account. And sometimes the sibling says, yeah, I was just on here to help mom and dad and they, they're willing to split it. Other times they say, pound sand, right? This was mine. I helped with mom and dad, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. And that's where it tends to breed conflict. And so that's a, a lot of things that we see in terms of missteps where people actually come into my office and they say, oh, well, we've got, you know, so-and-so on the account, but none of the others. I talk to them about what that looks like, which means sometimes it can be a co-signer on an account, allows them mm-hmm. to make payments and deposits and withdrawals, but they're not a co-owner so that when they do pass, it goes under the provisions of the will. So as you can see, that's a lot. There's a lot of moving parts, but that's why these conversations are so important because those inconsistencies across your will, across your accounts, across your beneficiary designations tend to sow discord amongst the family and cause conflict. Yeah. And that's also the similar thing with, you know, a house, another big asset. And I know a lot of people try to do that as well, you know, whether there be some health issues starting to come up or maybe thinking this will be easier, just get, you know, one of the kids 
on the house deed with me as well. But that also brings up not only some tax implications, but those confusions as far as uh, that will process going ahead. Absolutely right, Andrew. So, and we won't get into the tax implications necessarily, right? We'll let George talk about that on a later show. We'll let the accountant (laughs) handle that in terms of putting a child on on the deed with you before you pass, um, because there are some definite tax considerations on more than one level. But the other thing is the ownership component. And I've seen cases like that where uh, a child gets the home and then goes and sells it, uh, kind of unbeknownst at times to others. Uh, and the expectation is, is that was going to be split just like everything else in the will. But um, that child decided, you know, for whatever reason, they were going to go ahead and do that. Um, the other thing is I see people, there are other mechanisms to avoid probate and to transfer a home automatically. And, and that is a beneficiary's deed. Um The issue there is if you have multiple kids, uh, a beneficiary deed is a transfer on death deed that you actually record while you're alive. It's just like a beneficiary designation on an account. The difficulty there is, is if you have like three kids, once mom and dad die, that property transfers to the three kids. And then suddenly we've got three property owners, right? Mm -hmm. And they all have to agree before you can do anything with the asset. Whereas if you allow the house to actually just be in your name, go into your probate estate and be divided uh, or dealt with via your will, your executor can say, well, three kids can't agree on what we want to do with the house, so I'm going to sell it and we'll split the proceeds, right? That avoids warring family, right, to some extent. So those are all big things to consider, big questions. There are different tools and mechanisms, and the only way you find out what those are uh, beyond what we're talking about today is to come and see me. Awesome. You know, one of those uh, one of those things that I oftentimes, uh, as I'm sitting down with clients and we're going over and updating beneficiaries, because yes, there 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 are births, there are deaths, there there are all kinds of different things out there. Uh, one thing that that I oftentimes will ask is, do you have a trust set up, right? That that is whether that's created now or it's created uh, at your passing, and and we'll talk about that living trust versus testamentary trust here in a little bit. But one of the things I, I often will say is, rather than naming kids as your contingent beneficiaries, do you just want to name your trust as that contingent? Because, you know, we'll, we'll do the spouse as the primary, but if our spouse predeceases us, then, it, then uh, contractually it looks at the contingents. Is setting that trust as the contingent beneficiary a good idea? Absolutely, and I'm so glad that you're having those conversations with your clients, Rick. <laughs> So that's just a simpler way administratively for either your trustee or your personal representative to help gather those assets, right? Because in terms of process and how those assets go, if you have a primary beneficiary, it's going to go to them, right? And then if you have no contingent beneficiary, right, or there's a blank beneficiary, it's going to go into your estate and then it will be distributed out from there. So if you name the testamentary trust that you're establishing or even your revocable trust, rather than have to take a step into the estate and then out to the trust, it'll just be payable directly into those trusts. So it saves, it's probably the same process for you guys, but it saves the personal representative and the trustee some time in terms of they can just go get those assets and put them in the trust. It doesn't have to make a stop in the estate. Um, So that's absolutely a, a potential beneficiary designation that works. 
Absolutely. And when we're talking about trust, obviously you hear a lot about either a revocable trust or irrevocable. So what's the big difference and what would be the benefits of going down either of those options? So a revocable trust is a counterpart. When I'm looking at estate plans, you have kind of two main types of of estate plans. One is a will-based estate plan. And then one is a trust-based estate plan. And a trust-based estate plan deals with what we call a revocable living trust or a revocable trust. The main concept behind a revocable trust is probate avoidance and to ensure everything is kind of under one umbrella, which that means we establish the trust document and the distribution provisions between a trust and a will are basically the same, right? Where does my property go? It's just how that property is held up until the time you die. So a revocable trust is we establish the trust, get the documents set up, and then we retitle all of your assets into the name of the trust. Or we make sure your trust is the beneficiary of assets. The idea there is we have it all in this revocable living trust for estate planning purposes to avoid probate, but for ownership purposes, tax purposes, it's as if you own it. You don't fill out a separate tax return. You don't need a tax ID number for your revocable trust. It really is just titling and ownership for estate planning purposes. Mm -hmm. Whereas an irrevocable trust, that's when we're talking about a testamentary trust, right? That's something that is established upon your passing. um, And that, that trust cannot be revoked by either the trustee or the beneficiary. Those trusts do have a separate tax return. They have a separate ID number. So income and how that's handled, again, question for your accountant, but it does involve that additional piece of work. The irrevocable versus revocable really comes down to when you have a revocable living trust, you as the grantor or the settlor of that trust, when you establish it, you can revoke it at any time, right? You're typically the settler of the trust, so the person that establishes it, you're the trustee and you're the beneficiary, right? You're all three roles because it's your property. You can put things in, take it out as you want. You can pay your, you know, give yourself whatever assets you want. But you can also pull that back. And sometimes people have a trust that's set up and it doesn't make sense for them anymore. So we'll revoke it um, and we'll just put a will-based estate plan in place. Not very common though. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, you hear the term trust and uh, pardon my naivete on this, obviously, you know, just being a, a simple radio host. That, you <laughs> and know, a Detroit Lions fan. Don't. Give yourself more credit. Okay. Well, you hear, you know, you kind of associate the term trust with like trust fund baby, obviously thinking that there's a lot of money in there. And do you have to have a sizable amount of money or assets to set up a trust? Or is that really something that could really even take care of your simple things? Say you just have, you know, like life insurance, home, cars. Here it comes. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way to not say it depends, but that's just where we're going to go. I mean, it, it depends. And a lot of the times it's not, people think, oh, well, I have a simple asset structure, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, I own a house, I have life insurance, retirement, and a car. I don't need a trust. Well, maybe. Um, you know, some of it is people really want to avoid that probate process, which in Colorado is fairly simple. But it depends largely on the nature of your assets, but what your ultimate wishes are. Um, and sometimes a trust, though more complex to set up and more expensive, could save money ultimately in terms of identifying your assets, keeping that list updated. Because what we see is if you don't have a trust, even if you have basic assets, people are looking through mom and dad or brother and sister's mail, right? Because they don't know what bank accounts they have where. Whereas a trust, typically you 
establish with a asset sheet and then you continue to update that as you know things come in and out of the trust so um, whether a trust works for you largely depends on the client and what their goals are and that's you know again part of the conversation i'm not one to say oh you know you should definitely do a trust because it's going to cost more money and make me more money um (laughs) but uh you know for me it's it's what fits the client best and sometimes you know, it means letting them know, hey, I know you may want this trust, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. And we can save you some time and some money in that process. Awesome. Well, folks, we are up against that final break in today's show. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about all, all of the, well, really all of those other questions that kind of pop up along the way. So stick around. Hopefully we hear more than it depends. We will be right back. Are you worried about what's been going on in the markets and how it has affected your portfolio? Maybe you need a financial checkup. If you have questions about the health of your financial future, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary checkup. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Well, folks, thanks for sticking with us through that break here on Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group. Rick Stevens, Andrew Rogers, Evan Withrow talking all things estate planning today. And and Evan, in that last segment, there, there was something that kind of jogged my uh, my mind a little bit here. And, and I may have some personal experience uh, with this as we're talking wills versus trust and that sort of thing. If, say, somebody owns some joint property, not with their spouse, but something perhaps they inherited and, and they own it now jointly with siblings, and and I'll even throw the added layer of it's not in the state of Colorado because our families might be a thousand miles away in Illinois uh, or, you know, 800 miles away in Texas somewhere. And let's say just just hypothetically, we've inherited some farmland We've inherited shares in an oil field. Is having that as part of that trust piece in an estate plan a good idea and and kind of a reason why a trust would be something useful? That is definitely a main consideration. So when we're looking at assets, that's where your asset structure may not be complicated, but owning property right? Real property, real estate, land, house, what have you outside of the state of Colorado, more often than not, you're better off establishing a trust. And that's so that you can bring ownership of that property under the Colorado trust so that it's distributed according to the trust and to the the laws of Colorado. Whereas if you own it, even if you own it jointly with siblings, you own it individually, and you don't have that in the name of a trust, what you have to do is open a probate case here in Colorado, and then you have to open a secondary or what we call an ancillary probate out in that particular state. Some states have a more simplified version of probate when it comes to an ancillary probate. Some, it's the same exact process as your run-of-the-mill probate, which means you're hiring an attorney in Colorado to help you, you're hiring an attorney in Texas or in Illinois to help you, and the estate is paying the costs associated with that and the timelines that come along with it. So uh, a big one for me is 
we run through a general idea of your assets and then a big starred question every time I'm in with folks that I look at, and that's why it's got a big star next to it, and ask is, do you own property outside of Colorado? Because that automatically makes you a better candidate for a trust because from a time perspective, a cost perspective, a simplicity perspective, a headache perspective, <laughs> it's going to be easier for us to do a little more work now, establish a trust, and then have your ownership share, you know, be renamed into the title of your trust. And just so you know, I mean, not everybody's dealt with it, but there's plenty of title companies, real estate agents, the clerk and recorders. They are all pretty aware of what these revocable living trusts are or these family trusts are. So getting those things changed and retitled, we help you with that. Um, and even if you want to sell your share or sell your property and you're selling it out of the name of your trust, it's relatively commonplace and title companies and closers and mortgage lenders, there's typically no issue there. So that's that's another thing is I don't want to deal with that headache. It's as if you own the property. It's just a different name on title, which is the name of your trust. Awesome. Now, now that kind of also adds, you know, an, another question in there because I I get asked this often because one of the questions that, you know, as I'm sitting down with folks, I ask that question, do you have a will? Do you have a trust? Sometimes I get asked the question, do I need both of those? So, so I don't ever know how to answer that. That's usually when I direct to you. But if I can direct it to you right here, do people need a will and a trust? Yes. This is some kind of record. <laughs> um, yes, you do, but not in the way you'd think, right? And so I said earlier, you have will-based estate plans and you have trust-based estate plans. The idea is whether it's a will or a trust, you're designating in those documents where your property goes. So if you have a trust-based estate plan, you do not have a will that says the same things as your trust. Rather, it's what we call a pour-over will. It is a will that simply directs that any assets outside of the trust that didn't get renamed or retitled or personal property that doesn't have a title goes into the trust and is distributed according to the terms of the trust. It's basically a catch-all. So if we've got some things out there that we forgot to retitle, we wanna make sure via the pour-over will that it's gonna go into the trust. So that's where I say yes. If you have a trust, you also need a will. Then people say, well, if I have a pour-over will, why do I have to retitle these assets? Well, that's because if, for example, you have a client with a financial account of, we'll say $150,000, maybe it's a retirement account, it's 401k, doesn't matter what it is, no beneficiary, name of the individual owner, not the name of their trust. You've done all this work with a lawyer, you've set up a trust, but you've left this singular account in your individual name. As a financial institution, and every now and then we'll try and work around this, but it really doesn't work that money has to go into the estate. So it gets paid out to the estate. But the only way to get it paid to the estate is to open a probate. So now you have a trust, then you have to open a probate, which, which you were hoping to avoid. And yes, eventually that account and that money will get to the trust via the pour over will, but you have to open a probate. And that's why working with my office, and this is, this is a, as much of a sales pitch as I tend to do is, we assist in all of those, what we call funding of the trust or retitling of those assets. We make sure that when we set up the trust, all of your assets are inside of it, upkeep and making sure that as you acquire new property or new accounts or new things, you have to do that on your own. But I can't tell you how many people come into my office and say, we mm. have a trust. And then I say, okay, have you funded it? Have you retitled everything? Well, no, we just thought it would be taken care of by the pour over will. 
Well, it does, but it also means you have to open probate, which that's why you wanted a trust, right? You didn't want to have to do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's just because it's the nature of different attorneys and uh, different practices. Not one is not better than the other, but we will kind of hold your hand through that whole process, so to speak, and make sure all those boxes are checked to ensure that you don't have to go through something you don't have to. So, so then if we're, if we're looking at that going, yes, we've got a will and we've got the trust, right? We've got that pour over will. How detailed as we're kind of sitting down and, and going through this whole estate planning process, how detailed should my estate plan be? Because, you know, as, as a guy who uh, likes some control in, in different things and yeah, mine's, mine's pretty crazy in control, but there may be some things that I don't tend to think of often. Um, I might happen to have some baseball cards from the 70s and 80s and 90s that if I were to actually go have them appraised, uh, my, my insurance guy actually told me once uh, when I asked how much does a collection have to be worth to, to have it separately insured? And his response was, if you have to ask that question, it's probably worth enough uh, to, to do that. Yeah. But let's say I've got that asset, but I never really even thought about putting that into my estate plan as to what to do with these X dollars worth of baseball cards. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of detail that I that I should probably go into into my estate plan, or, or do I just leave that up to my executor and trustees? Well, I mean, a lot of the times um, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because... More often than not, I would say when it comes to personal property, it's rare for you to designate in your will where those pieces of personal property go. And that's for two reasons. One, personal property tends to be more fluid in our lives, right? And when we say personal property, we mean anything other than money and real estate. So if you're making a cash-specific gift, say you want a particular family member or friend to receive $5,000 from your estate, that has to go in the will for it to be legally effective. Same for real estate. If you want to give the house or give, you know, a piece of land to someone, it has to be in your will. When it comes to personal property, not only do we kind of recommend against that so that you don't have to update your will as those pieces of property come and go, but also because Colorado allows for a separate mechanism for you to dictate where those personal property items go, like your baseball cards. And that's through the legal terminology is a Memorandum of Disposition of Tangible Personal Property. (laughs) Uh, In regular terms, it's a list of your stuff and who you're giving it to. Um, (laughs) When we draft wills, whether it's a trust-based estate plan or a will-based estate plan, we give you a form. It literally is just a, a form that says, describe the asset, indicate who it's to go to, um, and then you sign and date that, you can do that on a piece of notebook paper. Um, That memorandum or that piece of paper can be updated at any time, even after your will has been executed. I don't have to see that. That's a great way for people to say, hey, you know, I've got this particular watch that's a family heirloom, mom's jewelry collection, right? These rings are to go here. These, um, this necklace is to go over here, baseball cards. Those are all things that you can dictate separately. And I will tell you, having handled cases on the back end through probate, estate, and trust administration, even if you have a sizable estate, the points of contention more often than not have to do with personal property. And it's because of the intrinsic and the emotional value we attach to those. So I tell people, if you can deal with that via a list or sticky notes or some sort of designation as to who gets what, 
that's all the better for everybody. Well, and then it also has it in writing and a structure as well. So there's not that argument after somebody passed over a cuckoo clock or the precious Beanie Baby collection. Yeah, because, you know, mom mom would have wanted me to have or dad would have wanted mm-hmm. it done this way. We, we actually then do have it in writing. Right? It's, it's almost like you guys are starting to learn something uh, <laughs> when I come around because Rick stole my thunder, which is a lot of the times we hear mom would have wanted it this way, dad would have wanted it this way. And if it's not written down by mom or dad, we don't really know who's right. Yeah. Um, and so you get it on paper, you designate it, makes things a lot cleaner, avoids all that unnecessary conflict. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned a lot about kind of having that will enacted or things going in place. So I guess, again, this could just be kind of that, you know, stupid type question, you know, uh, kind of that everyman thing is how does that property actually get transferred, you know, on that eventual day? So I've alluded to it a little bit, but it comes down to kind of the categories we talked about. So anything with a beneficiary designation is going to go directly to that beneficiary. If you've got a joint owner, it's going to go to that joint owner. Um, however, if everything is kind of funneled through the estate, the transfer does take a little time, right? That's where your personal representative or executor identifies those assets. So for example, bank accounts, retirement accounts, financial liquid monies, they actually go and get that money in a sense, right? And transfer it or deposit it into what we call an estate account. So a main account, one big pot where everything goes. Houses, more often than not, you're going to sell that uh, unless somebody wants to keep it. And then they kind of decide how that buyout happens. But for simplicity's sake, you sell the home, you put that money into the estate account. And then once you've kind of garnered everything into one place, you distribute that money out. For physical items like cars, personal property, it's kind of like when you're moving, right? Kids show up, they come and get the things they want or they've been designated. They work through that and then they take it home with them, right? Um, or it gets shipped to them. And then the remainder usually gets donated or goes via an estate sale. But it's really, you've got your executor who, Rick, probably not the best term, but they're they're the quarterback, right? Like, right. I don't know who who would be the uh, baseball reference there. The he's catcher, a, maybe. The catcher. The, catcher, right? the guy yeah. who's really in charge. The catcher. And, and in reality, yes. the catcher is, you know, he's dictating to the pitcher, but he's also catching everything, right, that's coming to him on a regular basis. So, yeah, that's kind of how the transfer happens. Um, if they can transfer straight from one to the other, uh, straight from the estate to a beneficiary, great. More often than not, you kind of marshal it into one place, and then it goes out. Awesome. Well, Evan, we've covered a broad range of different things here today. If folks have those questions, if they want to set up that that time to sit down and talk, how do they get in touch with you? So as Rick has uh, tirelessly said, the firm name is Steiners and Dejas, Burrell and Wilhelmy. Most everyone in the community knows us as Steiners and Dejas. We're here in downtown Colorado Springs, right across from the Pioneer Museum. Um, You Google us, you'll find the address. Otherwise, you can call the firm. The number there is 719-635-4200. You give a call, you ask for Evan, uh, and we're off and running. Awesome. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for this week on Money Matters. We will begin next week talking about your money because your money matters. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Everybody.